We're now nearing the end of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 6. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God within us, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. It's okay if you're getting sick of this reading. Because it does seem to go on and it does seem to go and circle back every so often. And to be fair, we did get the last verse of last week's reading as the first word verse of this week's reading. So it does seem to double up a bit. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is offensive. Maybe that's why Francis Bacon painting is up there today because it's quite offensive. Sort of opens up things we don't want to have opened up. This was offensive to any good Jew. There's all kinds of prohibitions in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, against eating flesh and against having blood inside the flesh or eating blood. It's offensive to us. Those of us who aren't Jews, those of us who don't have the Hebrew scriptures as central to our life, it's offensive to us. It's cannibalism. Nobody wants to read this sort of stuff. Why on earth is it here? Why do we why is Jesus needing to be so offensive? He's a good Jew. He knows what this sounds like to good Jews because he is one. He's grown up with the same stuff. I think it's here somehow to shock us. Bacon, when he painted these works, uh, always said that they weren't designed to shock. But I don't believe him. I, I think they, they were. They were designed to make us think again about what is under the skin, what is beneath what it means to be an ordinary human being. Because he had lived through the Second World War. He'd lived through the 1930s and he'd seen the most 
educated nation on the planet, the most culturally sophisticated, according to them, the German nation, descend into absolute evil and chaos. So looking on the outside of a person doesn't tell you everything you need to know. Something else is going on. And I think in some way, Jesus is saying something about that here. Because not only does he say, those, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He then goes on to say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And scholars tell us that he changes the word there in the Aramaic and then into the Greek. He doesn't just say eat, he says chew or gnaw or, or worry like a dog at a bone. It's even more graphic and more gruesome. He doubles down on the, on the offence. See, this is a group of people who knew who Jesus was. We, if you were here last week, remember, they said, we know this man, he's Joseph's son. We know where he's from, we know the kind of person he is. And they knew that, but they also knew another thing. They knew because Jesus had done this miraculous feeding, which was a mirror image, if you like, of the feeding of the people of Israel in the Exodus with the manna that came down from heaven, a kind of uh, the foundation story of what it meant to be a Jewish person and the Jewish nation. They were starting to see Jesus as obviously a new Moses, a return, ready to change everything, ready to do things differently. And they were desperate for liberation under the heel of the Roman Empire. They were desperate for things to be other than they are. I don't know if I... Did I say this last week? I'm starting to forget what I've said and what I haven't on this subject. I've been fascinated to watch our Prime Minister doing in public what I do in private desperately hoping that things will be better with no reason other than just hope they're not better in most of, the, of Australia they're worse than they were three weeks ago we're in a sense just lucky at this point today in South Australia who knows what tomorrow will bring but I see the Prime Minister coming on the, the news all the time desperately hoping and putting into place sort of little plans that will kind of in a sense, make us all feel a bit better. And this is not a criticism. I have many things to be critical about, about our Prime Minister, but it's not this. Because I'm doing the same thing, but I'm just doing it in private. I don't have the responsibility of kind of living out my frustration and pain and hope in public, like he does. We're desperate for liberation from COVID. We're desperate for liberation since we have had another report on our environment from environmental destruction that will, if not poison us, will certainly poison our grandchildren. We're desperate for liberation from all of the evil that we see around us and all of the demons that we carry in our own souls. It seems to me that Jesus is constantly inviting people into liberation, but they have already decided how that's supposed to look. And maybe the story of you better eat my flesh and drink my blood is like it. We hear stories of cannibalism, how people say that one of the reasons for cannibalism in some tribal groups that have practiced it is you take on the strength and the character of the person that you eat. 
You take their spirit into you. You take their soul into you. And if that person is strong, and you, but you've managed to best them, then you become stronger. You become somehow who they are, becomes part of who you are. I think Jesus might be saying here, look, I'm using this really, really offensive metaphor. And I'm using it because I want you to see past it. And I want you to see that what you want is not what you need. What you want is a new religion, a better religion than the one we've got. What you want is a new king, a better king than the mob that we've got there at the moment. What you want is a new structure in which you can fit. But that's not what I'm offering. You don't need a new external structure in order to run your lives. In fact, what you need, and here's I'm going to be really offensive, Jesus says, is you need not God out there, but God in here. You need to eat God. You need to ingest. You need to have it inside you. Jesus is contrasting what he's doing to what Moses did. Moses came, gave them food every day. Jesus is saying, that's the problem, I think, with the old religion, is you need the ritual, you need to fill it up. We, I was always told I should come to church, because if I didn't, I would stop being a Christian. Somehow I would lose my way. Now, I don't think that's at all true. I, I think there is value in us gathering, but the value for me, and I think for many of you, is that we are able to affirm together something that is true for us, and saying it out aloud and singing it out aloud and hearing it read to us reminds us of who we are. It doesn't make us who we are, it reminds us of who we are. I think what Jesus is saying is that we need something far more radical. And I think he's got in mind this reading from Jeremiah, one of the great prophets who was speaking to the people of Israel at a time of utter despair. They had always thought if we do exactly the right thing, God will be on our side and nothing will go wrong. But things went wrong over and over and over again. You know where Israel is. It's basically the main road of the Near East. All the great empires rode through Israel to get to the next part of the world that they wanted to conquer, either coming from the north, the Persians, or coming from the south, the Egyptians, and coming from the west, the Romans. Everyone came through, everyone hammered the Jews. Every time they thought, if we do the right thing, and if we don't do the right thing, and we get hammered, it's because we've done the wrong thing, and we must repent and do the right thing, and many of the Psalms are full of this kind of stuff. But then Jeremiah comes along and says this, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. A prophet speaking the words of God as he understands them. The days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was like a husband to them. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, remember how we've often talked about law, it's not a set of rules, it's a way of living of which, in which a set of rules exist. 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I've used this illustration many times and it's still central to my way of thinking about all of this stuff. It's not about me, it's about someone else that I know. A young man living at home, not very good at doing his chores around the house, always having to be yelled at. His, one of his jobs was to do the dishes after the family meal. It was always a battle, even though he was now an adult, but still a young man, always a battle. One day, he invites a young woman home. They've been going out, they're friendly. It's time to introduce them to the family. He invites her home. They have a lovely meal. She's wonderful. Everybody likes her. At the end of the meal, she hops up and says, I'm going to do the dishes. And do you know what that young man does? He does the dishes. He turns up right next to her and he's talking and they're washing and it's all fantastic. What's the difference? Why is it so hard to get him to do the dishes? How come he's doing the dishes now? You don't need me to tell you. You know why. Something. It's the story of Jeremiah. Something has happened within him. Has changed him. And he's doing the thing that needs to be done. On that day, Jesus says, talking about an, some sort of end time, and we don't really understand what that means in the Gospel of John, you will all know that you are in me and I am in you. That's what Jesus is talking about. You will all know that I am in you and you are in me. It's a radical understanding of an experience of God. It hasn't to do with ritual. It hasn't to do with rules. It hasn't to do with morality. It has to do with a new inward truth. Julian of Norwich, one of the great mystics of, uh, of Western Christianity. She was born, or actually she was probably very young, maybe about six, when the Black Plague first hit, the Black Death first hit England and the rest of Europe. She was probably six or seven, according to the historians. She probably lost most of her family in that. It came again, the Black Death, when she was a young woman, uh, probably married and lost her husband and children in that period. We know her as Julian of Norwich because she took her name from the town of Norwich and the church of St. Julian. And she lived in a time when the Black Death devastated Europe. Probably as many as half the people of Europe died during that 50-year period. And the only way to protect yourself from, from this, the church said, was to do penance, was to pray loudly, was to beat yourself, was to do all the kind of ritual things. She didn't accept any of that. She wrote a book, probably the first, certainly the first book we know of, by a woman in, in Europe. And one of the things she said was this, For as the body is clad in cloth, and the flesh in the skin, and the bones in the flesh, and the heart in the trunk, so are we, soul and body, clad and enclosed in the goodness of God. I think she's channeling Jesus and Jeremiah. And she said, 
We are not simply made by God. We are made of God. We are not simply made by God. We are made of God. It's a radical different understanding of what it means. People would come to Julian of Norwich. She lived in the church in a small cell and hear her tell the story that everyone, regardless of what's happening to them, regardless of the pain and suffering they were feeling, was actually loved by God, not having to perform for God. We're not simply made by God. We are made of God. Okay, that'll have to do, but you know, we could keep going with this, but it opens it up in a different way. And I think, you know, sounding like a TV show, stay tuned for next week. We'll see what people do with it. Amen.